Welcome to the ministry of Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray this message by Pastor John Roberts is a blessing to you. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. Five traits of a good father. Now, this is not an exhaustive list by any means. And I do want to, in the, the, the spirit of um, modern times, give you a trigger warning. Um, I'm going to be dealing with a lot of generalities, so there are going to be many exceptions to some of the things I say, as there is with all generalities, but the, the rule is not excluded by the exceptions. Keep that in mind. And um, in all of these, all five of these traits, there's great overlap between these. So they, there's some, there are some unique things about each of these traits, but there are some specifics that we want to look at too. The very first trait is a trait of a protector. And there are, there are two senses that, that fathers, and, and this would apply to men in general or to husbands in particular, fathers in particular for today. There, there's being a spiritual protector and there's being a physical protector. And I'm going to take the physical first and we'll deal with the second trait we're going to look at in a minute or two is to be a priest of your family. And that really includes being a spiritual protector. But... Uh, to be physically, to physically be protective of your family is scriptural. 1 Peter 5.8, Peter is talking about the role of men and, well, all Christians, but I'm, I'm using this in particular for men. And he says, be sober, which um, really has very little to do with whether or not you consume alcohol. It literally means to be self-controlled, which... When you get drunk, that's the, probably the major trait of, of drinking alcohol, is you lose your self-control. But it goes way beyond. I know a lot of people that never drink and they're absolutely not self-controlled. They're two different traits. So the first thing he says is be self-controlled and be vigilant, which means to be watchful. That's that protective spirit, to be on the watch why? Because we have an adversary. The adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. We quoted it a minute ago. Um, the devil comes, the enemy comes for one reason, to kill, steal, and destroy. John 10.10. 10. Jesus came for one reason, that we might have life and that more abundantly. So we, we, I, I, I get frustrated sometimes, and I get frustrated primarily because it really affected my life. I, there is a, a doctrine, and it is very true, about the, the sovereignty of God, and God is a sovereign God. But in His sovereignty, He has given us a lot of control over our own lives, but He also, for this time period, He has allowed the existence of evil in our midst. And a lot of the things that happen in our world, the world and a large number of Christians will attribute it, this is God's will for you. Just because an event comes down your path does not mean that God is in that event. We have an enemy and we have to deal with that enemy. 
I've said it before, God, part of, of being a Christian is there is going to be some suffering. But we need to suffer the things that Jesus suffered as our example, which is persecution and all of the things surrounding that, but not suffer the things that Jesus suffered as our, or as our substitute. Jesus suffered sin. He became sin on the cross. He suffered disease. He became everything evil that, that mankind is. Jesus became that, paid the price for it. But when he was resurrected, he squashed it. He crushed it. He destroyed it. It, it does not have, have power over us anymore. And we need to avoid that like the plague. And, and when, when sickness, when affliction, when things that are obviously not God's will for us come into our lives, we need to resist it. That's the, the, the role, and it's for every Christian, but primarily I'm looking today, that's the, fa- the role of the Father. Can you put that, that picture? I referred to this earlier. This is a picture of my grandson, Gage. And he was so proud. He's got his belt, his cape. The reason I I did that, I also have a granddaughter. I've got five grandkids, one girl. The difference between this little rascal and his sister, the second she could toddle around, she would go rummage through um, um, through the kitchen and pull out the plastic um grocery sacks and stick it on her arm because she needed a purse for her day. No one taught her that. We finally, it got to be such a standing joke that when she was like two, maybe three, we bought her a purse for Christmas and she needed help opening the box and I helped her open the box and she saw that Person, I mean, and it's a little bit, it's a child's purse. Her eyes lit up. She pulled that purse up, and you know the first thing she did? She put it to her ear and she shook it. And she looked at me like, What? You gave me a purse that's empty? And Gimpaw realized his mistake real fast, and I started digging, praying I had some coins. And it didn't matter whether it was pennies or quarters or half dollars, she just wanted something to rattle in that purse. Nobody taught her that. She's about as feminine as you can be. His instinct, he's a protector. He he loves to fight bad guys. And he'll set up the bad guys and he'll knock the bad guys down. That's just an instinct that, that all men have. And the great thing about it, and this is one of the roles of the father, is we have to teach our sons to embrace that attitude. Now, feminism today will tell you that masculinity is toxic and, and that men are pigs. You know, um, I forgot his name, guy that, that did tool time, this TV tool time, made a fortune doing his, his, um, his shtick on, on men are pigs. Well, that's great. I'm glad he... he was able to get rich doing that. But we may have some piggish attitudes. We may be a little more sloppy than women in general. But men are not pigs. And we need to resist that. You go through, and, and I'll challenge you. It would be a hard task. But you go look at every modern sitcom, 
Every one of them portray the husband and the father as being an idiot that needs his children and his wife to pull him out of the stupid things he does. The world is attacking fathers and men in general nonstop. Why? Because that relates to who we, how we relate to God the Father. And if he can destroy that relationship, he'll destroy or he'll damage the other relationship. One of the number one things that fathers need to do in protecting is to teach their sons how to be protectors. It's a fact that a protector will never be an abuser. You want, an, you want to solve the, the, the problem of abusive men? Teach them how to be gentlemen, first of all. I listen to all of this. i got to choose my words carefully because I really want to cuss when I think about this. This whole stuff about the Me Too movement and, and particularly Harvey Weinstein. And my first thought when I started hearing this, if I was in a relationship with an actress and she came back and said, Harvey Weinstein did this, I'd be going out and rummaging through my garage finding an old t-ball bat and we'd go, I'd go pay a visit and there'd be some knees broken. Now I guarantee you that's me in the flesh but I'll have to, I'll, I'll break his knees and pray for repentance later. How in the world people put up with that stuff? Men in these women's lives fail to protect, the, whether it's a husband or a father or a brother or a cousin. I don't care. You would not have survived the incident if you had done that to a relative of mine, a female relative of mine. There would have been blows thrown. Why did it not happen? Because people were, were the, the men in these situations have not been taught. They've been feminized. That, well, violence is never the, the, the solution. I'm sorry, Hitler's dead today. Well, he'd be dead no matter what. But he died because the, the nations of the world said, We've let him go too long. He's wreaked havoc. Now we have to use severe violence. Violence is sometimes called for. But if you teach your, your sons how to be gentlemen, they don't tend to, to, and how to be, and part of that being a gentleman is to be a protector, then you don't have to worry about them being abusers. Gentlemen don't do that. And then the, the, the other side of that is you also have to teach your daughters how to be wary of men. Because let's face it, if you're a guy, you know what pigs we can be. And I remember having, having conversations with my daughter, especially before she went off to college, about these are things you do, these are things you don't do. And I know you're gonna, there's going to be temptations, but there's a price to pay if you break these rules. And unfortunately, my big rule with her was, if you decide to go to a party, first of all, don't go to parties, but if you decide to go to one, you never put anything in your mouth that you didn't break the seal. If it's food, you peel the wrapper off of it. If it's a drink, you break the seal. And if you set it down and leave it for 30 seconds, you don't pick it back up without pouring it out and getting a brand new one. Why? Because there are predators out there. 
There are, there's, there are multiple people out there that will give in to the devil, both male and female, and do things that, that shouldn't be done. And we need to teach. We need to be protectors ourselves, and we need to teach our sons and our daughters how to live in this nasty, foul, foul world that we live in. Second trait is the trait of being a priest. Go to Second Chronicles chapter 15. We're going to start in... Verse 1 said, Now the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Obed. And he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all of Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. That's the state of affairs that they're in right now. The, the nation of Israel in Second in Chronicles. They have quit seeking the Lord, so he's, he, technically I would argue that he hasn't walked away from them. They walked away from him, and he, he will pursue you to a point, but then he'll let you go off into your sin. That's the state. Now the way out, verse 3, tells you how to get out of it. This is how they got into it. You reverse it. It says, for a long time Israel has been without the true God, without a teaching priest, and without law. They were in the state they were in because one of the functions of the priesthood, when you brought the sacrifice, the priesthood was to take the sacrifice and describe the nature of sin and how you are a sinner. But we are going to sacrifice this innocent animal and this innocent animal is standing in the place of the Messiah who is going to come and we're going to sacrifice and bleed this thing dry and then cut its throat, which is a nasty business, and then watch that blood drain out and the life drain out of that animal and look to the person and say, this is the result of your sin, death. The death for this animal. Now thank God that God is going to use the blood of this animal to temporarily cover your sin. But there is a Messiah coming. And when He comes, He's going to shed His blood. And His blood will wipe out the power of sin. Had they had, and when they had teaching priests, they didn't have a problem during that period with sin in the camp. Because they knew it was wrong and they would forsake it. Verse 4 says, But when in their trouble they turned to the Lord God of Israel and sought Him, He was found by them. They turned to Him because someone finally woke up and said, This is why you are where you are. This is what God has called fathers and husbands to do. To be a teaching priest. Uh, let me tell you, you cannot be a teacher without opening your mouth. And believe me, I grew up in the John Wayne era. Men are to be strong and silent. Never was a bigger lie told. Strong, yes. Silent, no. God hasn't called us to be dictators, but He has called us to be communicators. And He's called us to prayer. We, we, we read earlier, 1 Peter 5.8, if you go back to 1 Peter, back up to verse 5, God says, this is about mid-verse, He says, Be clothed with humility 
For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all of your care upon him, for he cares for you. The two words there, they're both, they're translated care in English, but it's two different Greek words. The first one, casting all your care, that, that Greek word there means things that distract you. They are, they are weights and things that pull you away from what you're supposed to be doing because you're just so worried about this that you can't, you can't see anything else. The song we just sang, keep your eyes on Jesus. For when your eyes are on Him, the things of this earth will grow strangely dim. It's not that they don't exist. It's just that when you keep your eyes on the Word and you keep your eyes on how much He cares for you, the second word there when it says, for He cares for you, that word means that He gives attention. When you realize how much attention God is putting on you, you will quit putting attention on your problems. It's not that they don't exist, but they're not important because I got the God of the universe on my side. What am I worried about a bill? What am I worried about anything? I got God on my side. But it will lead me to pray. 1 Timothy 2.8, Paul says, I desire therefore that the men everywhere pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. What men, the, ten, the natural tendency that says, the reason he, I think he lists wrath first, is our natural tendency is when there's a problem, I want to ball bat and I'm going to go beat the problem into submission. What I said about the Harvey Weinsteins of this world is a natural tendency for men. It can be your flesh, you know, we don't need a bunch of vigilantes running around. But if you have that heart of a protector, there's that urge in there. Well, sometimes we need to balance that heart of the protector with the heart of a priest and realize that 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 person may not be my enemy. It's the spirit behind that person that's motivating him. And if I will take authority over that spirit, maybe then I can deal with the person and redeem the person by presenting the, 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 the word to them and having them embrace the same Christianity that I've embraced. But it requires a priest lifting up holy hands. Holy hands means I'm not involved in the dirty work. I'm not out here. Jesus washed, famously washed the feet of the disciples in John 13. Well, it's not only your feet that get dirty. Sometimes it's your hands that get dirty. Sometimes it's all of you that gets dirty. But when it happens, remember, you're dirty on the outside, not the inside. You just got to clean the outside if your inside is already clean. And that inside gets clean through the new birth. It's God's grace that cleanses you on the outside. Sometimes it's our confession and our, our admitting to God, I screwed up one more time, Lord, forgive me again. And then believing, putting faith that He is faithful and just to cleanse us from all of that unrighteousness. But in the midst of these prayers, we, we as, as Christians, we get so worked up about sin and sin in our life. And you realize that, that, that our problem is not the sin in our lives. And I know that's a radical statement for some of you, but listen. 2 Chronicles 7.14 
Very familiar verse. If my people who are called by my name, he's talking about believers, will humble themselves, sounds just like 1 Peter, and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Not saying that you can sin without consequences, but I'm saying if you, are, if you have sin in your life and it's a problem, quit worrying about the sin. Start praying. Humble yourself and pray and seek His face. The sin will take care of itself if we will pray. Because he says, then I will hear from heaven. Then I will forgive their sin and heal their land. The key here is being humble and praying and seeking God. The more you fight and struggle and try to overcome the sin, the bigger it's going to get, the more power it's going to have over you. It's not the sin that's the problem. It's the lack of humility, the lack of prayer, and the lack of seeking Him. Now, pay attention here. In fact, if you got bulletins, I'd take a note on this one, especially ladies. Because this is directed to the ladies. When men pray, ladies, they're not going to pray like you pray. Never. Here's, here's my point. Women talk to reason things out. Men will reason things out so they can talk. This is why, and I'm gonna, this, will be, this is worth the price of admission if you'll listen. This is why when husbands and wives talk, when the wife is talking, the biggest complaint that every wife in the universe ever was, ever will be, the biggest complaint is you don't listen to me. Is there an amen there, ladies? Why? Because she is talking to you, trying to get her thoughts organized by talking, reasoning out. It's why when you put four women together, they're going to sit and gaggle and talk and talk and talk and talk and men will sit there and think, dear God, has this ever got an end? Is there a solution here somewhere? And the women are thinking, we just want to talk. Why? Because they're reasoning it out. They're figuring out where they're going to go. They're figuring out how it's going to work through the conversation. If you are a smart husband, a smart father, you are not going to play Mr. Fix-It. You are going to sit there and obey the 12th commandment. Shutteth thy mouth. And if anything, when there's a pause, ask probing questions. Don't offer solutions. She's not looking for you to fix it. She's looking to share the burden. So say, well, honey, is this what you're saying? And nine times out of ten, you're going to get this look like, dear God, have you heard a word I said? Because sometimes they talk and what I hear is not what they're saying. But ladies, you also have to learn that men have caves. And we like our caves. And we go to our caves not because we're abandoning you. But we go to our caves to think and figure it out. And once we get it figured out and reasoned out, then we come out and we got the solution and we're ready to talk and we're ready to say this is where we're going. And it's what, it, what will take a woman three hours to discuss and figure out. A man will take four hours to figure it out and 30 seconds to talk about it. 
And when it comes to prayer, it's the same thing. When ladies pray, normally it's a long prayer. It's an involved prayer. Not always. Remember, I said trigger warning. These are generalities. Many exceptions to them. When a man prays, it's short, it's sweet, it's to the point. Let's go eat. That's why you never ask a woman to pray over your meal. Because it's probably going to be cold by the time they get done. You ask a man to pray... And you ask the hungriest dude at the table, Blessed Lord and all that's within us, Amen, let's eat. That's it. That's all the prayer you're going to get out of them. Why? Because we got a goal. Feed my belly. That's it. But we need to be a person of prayer. Third trait that we're going to look at. Men are called, fathers are called to be providers. To be givers. A, and, and, and I'm not just talking about earning money, although that's part of it. Because in, in our day, our economy, it's structured so it's nearly impossible for families to live on a single income. But I'm not talking about just earning money. I'm talking about if you want to be a good father, if you want to be a good man, you need to add to the life of your family. What are you adding? 1 Timothy 5.8. This is talking about jobs. But it says, If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. If you want to sit down, believe me, I went to Rama. Rama is famous. It was where you go. Brother Hagen had the, had the um, commission from God. Go teach my people faith. It got to the point, by the time I got there, and I started about, I think our class was like the seventh class after Ramah was founded, and um, I had to put down, I was willing to work, where I was going to work, and how much money I was going to need to support my family. And when I looked at that on the application process, I thought, Really? You got to ask me? I'm a grown man. I was 30 years old at the time. It's like, of course I'm going to work. My kids need food. I need food. I'm going to have bills to pay. Of course I'm going to work. Well, that's a dumb question. But then I realized that there were a lot of people that came out and they were going to live on faith. I'll never forget, we were at Grace Fellowship. It was about 3,500 people on Sunday morning that, that came to that church. And... One Sunday, somebody got up and testified real quick and said, I just want to praise God that, you know, we were hungry. We didn't have food and we went to do something. We came back and there were all these groceries at our doorstep. And I just want to praise God for providing these groceries. And he sat down. And another hand popped up. This was on a Sunday night. And they made time for, for testimonies. And another got up and he said, I just want to add a little bit to the story he said, I brought those groceries. And he said, I brought those groceries for your children, not for you. You and your wife either get a job or go to the pecan groves and pick up pecans off the ground and live on pecans. He said, you're being lazy. I only provided that food because your kids are hungry. So leave it alone. Don't you dare eat a bite of it. Man, you could have heard a pin drop in that church. And then Pastor Bob, bless his heart, he got to get up and try to smooth that over. Without saying he, the second guy's still right. 
If, you're, if you think you can live by faith and not get a job, Pastor Bob had, he told the story of a guy, because he preached a lot. God wants to bless you. God wants to prosper you. God wants to get you promotions and bring you money. And this guy said, brother, I've been believing for God to bless me financially. And he said, all I'm getting is job offers. And it's one of those times when as a pastor, you just want to grab your head because you know it's going to explode if you don't press on it real hard. Of course, that's how God provides us through jobs. But part of our job as a provider is not just to provide money, material goods. It's to provide a heritage. Don't leave your kids a million dollars. Leave them the knowledge of how to earn a million dollars. The first will ruin them. The second will empower them. It's the life skills of how to do things. Our physical bodies provide provide at least a hint of those roles. Men provide the seed. Women nurture the seed in their womb. If you're going to bring new life, you've got to have both. But the men's job is to provide not just money, but guidance, counsel, direction. All of those things are necessary. The fourth thing is you need to be a promoter. You see this with God the Father. Best example of a promoter I've ever seen. Matthew 3.17. This was at the baptism of Jesus. After the baptism, it says in verse 17, suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God the Father split heaven and spoke to the crowd and said, Pay attention to my Son. This is the Messiah. He's promoting His ministry. And then at the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus has manifested Himself in His glory, and while He was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is My beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then He added the second part, Hear Him. In other words, Peter was the one talking. Peter, shut up and listen. This is the one you need to listen to. God the Father is promoting the works of the Son. Part of the job of a father, and it is one of the most important parts. And this, don't get me wrong, this doesn't mean you never correct your children as a father. But the most important words you can ever say to your kid is, I am proud of you. Well, brother, you don't know my kids. There ain't much to be proud of. Do a search. Get a magnifying glass out and find something to be proud of them about. And then tell them you're proud of them. Especially boys. They need it. Forget boys. Men need their fathers. Grown men need their fathers to throw an arm around them and say, I'm proud of you. Now you may have. I did this with my grandkids. Grandkid number two. Thanks, Gimpa threw his shoulders back, grandson number one, why? Like, oh Lord, he's just like his daddy. I said, why? Because you're a good boy. I didn't try to find much of else. He is a good boy. He was seventh grader. I mean, there's not like he's just wrapped up in sin, but he needed to hear it. He wanted reassurance though. The first, the second one, my second grandson, he just, man, that's great, good. I don't need to reason. I just need to know you're proud of me. The first one to know, well, what is it I'm doing? Why? 
because he needs to, the assurance, I want to do some more of that. With him, I need to reinstill, and it's more the job of his dad than it is me, but I have, as his grandfather, I have a part of that, that it's not just your actions that I'm proud of. I'm proud of you because you have value. Whether you do the right thing or not, because let's face it, when you need people to show pride in you is when you have screwed up your worst. When somebody reaches down into that slime and pulls you out, that's when you need those words of encouragement. That's when you need to, to tell somebody, I believe in you. Why? Because when I'm flying high, I don't need anybody's praise. It's when I'm dragging. My tail's not on the ground, it's digging a furrow in the ground. That's when I need somebody to come alongside me and say, you can do this. You're worthy. That's what a father does. And then the last one, we need to be a prophet. A prophet tells his children what they can be. A prophet declares the end from the beginning. Isaiah 46, and I realize we're not God. This is speaking of God. Verse 9 says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. We need to look at where our kids are, where our, our wives are, where our family is, and start declaring, get the word on it, but declare where they're going. And the farther off the path they are, the more you have to declare it. Why? Because it's an act of faith. Back the devil. This is where your priest comes in. Your priestly role till says, Devil, you've had my son, you've had my daughter, and they're off doing this stuff, but I'm telling you, your, your power's bound. Your power's broken over them right now, and I'm declaring this is where they're going. And the farther they get off, the more you declare they're back on the path. Wow, that's just, I gotta talk, I gotta tell it like it is. No, tell it like you want it to be. Tell it like how God says it's going to be. When you were at your worst, God came in and said, this is who you are. And one day he got through to you. And we turned around and ran towards him and thought, "Woo! I found God. Not realizing he's chased us for years. We found him because we finally turned around. Best example, I'm not going to have you turn there, but in Genesis 35 you have the story of where um, Jacob and Rachel and Leah are heading back to their hometown and Rachel's pregnant. And before they get back, Rachel goes into labor and she's having a hard labor. And she gives birth to Benjamin, but just as she's dying, it says that she called his name Benomi. It was one of her, not one of her prouder moments, but let's cut her a little slack. She was dying. But her last dying words were, this is the son of my sorrow. And the, the midwife brought the baby to Jacob. And it says his father called him Benjamin. Mother said, this is the son of my sorrow. The father said, nope. Not labeling that kid that. This is the son of my right hand. He changed his name. Why? Because he's proclaiming what he wanted. Not what he saw. Now he just lost his wife. And Rachel was the favorite of between Rachel and Leah. Now, I want to close with this, this last thought because this is, this is the ultimate father figure for all of us. Luke chapter 15. There are three parables. 
parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin are the first two. First one, the shepherd leaves the 99 to find the one that's lost. The, the parable of the lost coin, a woman has coins, she loses one, she tears the house apart to find the one. Both of those show us a picture of, of, of whoever's in authority, the father. He's searching heaven and earth to find the lost soul. That's how he viewed us. But in the third parable, this is the parable of the prodigal son. And prodigal literally means wasteful. This, the father gives the inheritance to two brothers. One stays and works for dad. One goes off and spends his inheritance on riotous living. And when he comes to himself, he decides, hey, I'm going to go back to dad's house. Because the worst of his servants got it better than I've got. Verse 20, it says, But when this prodigal son was still a great way off, his father saw him. That's telling. How do you see someone that's a great ways off? You're watching. The father was watching for that son. He was working, doing all the things he did, but constantly in his mind and in his heart, he's watching for the son that's out there living in a way that he knows he shouldn't be living. And when he sees him, he does something. It says he has compassion and he runs. Literally, the word there for compassion is our, it's the word for your spleen, which, you know, most people you tell them, yeah, it's, that's where your emotions are. And I think, my spleen? I don't even know what my spleen does. I thought the heart was your seat of emotions. They just knew that the, the Hebrews just knew that when you got emotional, you felt something in your gut. But this isn't just compassion being emotion. It's emotion that leads to some kind of action. The father had compassion when he saw his son. He saw his son because he was watching. And that compassion moved him to run to his son. Compassion will always move you to go to what you want. And then once he got there, in verse 22, he gave his son Three things. First, he gave him a robe. Not just any robe, he gave him the best robe. The best he had. This shows, the, the, the one that comes to me is we've, Isaiah 61.10. He's covered me with the robe of righteousness. He said, you are back in my family. We saw it when we looked at, at David and Jonathan. Jonathan was in the position of power in that when they first had a relationship. And Jonathan took off his robe and placed it on David. Why? It's a, it's a sign of identifying. The father put his robe on the son and he said, You're my son again today. And then second, he gave him a ring. This also is a, it identifies a relationship. He gave him authority. There are two kinds of rings in ancient Hebrew. Society. There was an iron ring that signified you were a slave. And then there was a gold ring that signifies you have relationship with the person that gave you the ring. It's the reason that we put gold rings on used for wedding bands, not iron. When I got married, I didn't become a slave. Either. Man or woman. We became partners. There's relationship there. And that's what a father does. He's, no matter what your son, what your daughter does, you always say, when you come to me, here you are, you're part of my family, and I give you authority. 
Part of it was, it's very possible it was a signet ring. You put that in a wax, it gives you authority. And then the third thing he gave him were shoes. He gave him direction, purpose. I I look at people, I I was listening, um, I don't know if you all know who Jordan Peterson is. He's in the news a lot. He's a psychologist from a university in Toronto. And he's preaching common sense. He's not a Christian. But he's really after political correctness and, and the, um, the pushings of the far left. And, but I'm listening to him in an interview with, between he and another guy, and neither one of them are Christians. And, but everything they're, they, they're talking about has New Testament basis. In fact, they referenced the New Testament several times in this discussion. But neither one of them will acknowledge that it's God's power behind those, the reason those things work that they're talking about. It reminded me of, of, and I forget where it is now, but the scripture that says they are like rain cl- or clouds without rain, and they are, I forget the other example, but it's talking about people that take the name of Jesus but deny the power thereof. They're, they're practical Christians in how they live their life. They live all the same principles that Christians do, but they refuse to say, this is because of who Jesus is in my life. In fact, they'll say, Jesus is just a myth. It's these psychological principles that have led to this, and you're just, you know, you're kind of superstitious, so you have to attribute it all to a, a supernatural being. When I look at them, I think, there may be some psychology there. I mean, psychology is good at, at recognizing events and sometimes what motivates people in these events, but it's horrible at saying this is the root cause. The root cause is because the, God, the Father is looking out for us. All of these things are our targets. We want to be a protector. We want to be a provider. We want to be a priest and a prophet. And I forgot the fifth one. The what? The promoter. You need all of those, and you need to look at, 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 at the Father as our ultimate example. But you need to understand, lest you get bound up and think, God, I can't do any of that. I'm a failure. Well, dear God, if you examine your life for more than 30 seconds, of course you're a failure. We all fail at everything we do. None of us hit the mark. That's why part of the, the, the scriptural basis I used of this was 1 Peter 5. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you. That doesn't mean He's going to exalt you in the world's eyes. It means He's going to give you a place. Casting your care. I can't do this, God. Of course you can't do it. If you could do it, you wouldn't need Jesus. His grace gives you the the ability to do it. There are targets that we strive for, but we need to not pick up the care and the weight of it. Because we're not designed to carry the weight of it. The last scripture, I'm going to close with this, John 13, verse 3 and 4. This is the overall attitude we have to have. There's a big theological debate. Personally, I just don't care, but it does apply to this. There's a big theological debate 
about when did Jesus, when was Jesus aware that he was God in the flesh? Did he always have that knowledge from birth on? Or was it sometime in his life and in his ministry that it, it came to a realization mentally that I am God in the flesh? Well, I don't know where it happened. Don't care. I believe he was God in the flesh. Whether he recognized it mentally or not, I don't care. But in this verse, John 13, 3, he does, and it's the reason, and, and it, this, the reason it's mentioned here is this is the motivation. So I'll be honest with you, this is the reason I preach so hard. You need to learn who you are in Christ. Because if you can't identify yourself in Him, you're going to identify yourself in yourself, and you are a loser with a capital L. But when you identify who He is and who He is in you, then you realize, I can do anything He tells me to do. But notice Jesus' attitude. This is verse 3 of John 13. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He had come from God and was going to God. He's declaring right there, the Apostle John is saying, Jesus knew who He was. He knew He was God in the flesh. And what's his first action after that realization? He arose from supper, laid aside his garments, and took a towel and girded himself to wash the disciples' feet. He took his garment off. He took that robe of righteousness. He took that robe that said, I'm the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he picked up a servant's towel and he said, I'm going to serve you. I am your slave. That's the role God's called us to as fathers, as Christians, as human beings. I've exalted you to sit with me in heavenly places. You're sitting, seated at the right hand of the Father. Now go make yourself a slave and serve your, your, your wife, your children, your family, your community, your church. Our existence is motivated or should be motivated and empowered by serving others. That's why we were created. And when you get the realization of who you are and the authority you have, you realize I only have this for one reason. To get about the Father's business. That's why I'm here. That's all I want to do. I just want to be pleasing to God. And then God looks at you and He says, you are. He doesn't say, I'm pleased with your actions. He says, I'm pleased with you. He goes, go do the actions I told you. When we get that, it's amazing. Life just falls into place. So it's going to be easy? No, it's going to be simple and hard. The simplest things in life are sometimes the hardest things in life. That's why we got to cast all our care on Him. That's why we need to humble ourselves under His mighty hand and let Him exalt me. Why? Because I can't do what He's called me to do. That's why it requires faith. I have to declare the end when in my natural mind, the end is disaster. I've been down this road before. I've been down it a bunch of times, and every time I go down this road, it ends in disaster. And God says, not this time, declare success. 
Lord, I don't see how it's always ended this way. You going to do what I say? Well, okay. Now, go find somebody to serve. Get your mind off your problems and get your mind on their problems and start meeting their needs, and I'll take care of your needs because you're my son. You're my daughter. I'm, care- I'm, look- I'm paying attention to what you need. Now you go pay attention to what somebody else needs and leave me to meet your needs. Amen? It's, a, it's a, an existence of service. That is what a father's job is. Not to be the lion, not to scream orders and expect everybody to fall in place. It's to say, there's the battle. We're going. I'm heading there. Come with me. And you go fight the fight. If nobody follows you, that's on them. Quit worrying about having followers. Start learning to be a leader. They're not the same things. Good leaders don't constantly turn around and say, is anybody following me? No, they just go do the battle. They fight the fight that they know they're called to fight. I don't have to have anybody behind me except God. If He's with me, what else do I need? Because He's the one I'm trying to please. And if I can please Him, everybody else that counts will be satisfied. Thank you so much for joining us today. If this message has blessed you, We invite you to visit us in person at the corner of Highway 31 South and Southport Road, Indianapolis, Indiana, or visit us online at FCCIndianapolis.com.